There are many different kinds of prayer. There are mealtime prayers that tend to go quickly because everyone's hungry and the food's getting cold. There are bedtime prayers where, with children and mom and dad and the pet hamster get prayed for. There are church prayers that focus on the needs of the congregation, the community, and our world. There are private prayers that consist of the silent cries to God and our deepest, about our deepest needs or concerns. They, are often, they often contain spontaneous praise and worship to God. There are crisis prayers where we immediately pray for things that come into our lives. Then there are conversational prayers where we sense God is speaking to us in a still, small voice, giving us direction and a definite awareness of His presence. Some of these prayers are like what you might call 101 or 201 level classes. They're rich and meaningful. They really don't challenge us to take our prayer lives, our spiritual lives, to a deeper level. Today we're going to look at some prayers that will challenge us to take our spiritual lives and our prayer lives to a deeper level. And these are what I'm calling dangerous prayers. They're dangerous because they require great faith in God to pray them. They're dangerous because if God answers them, those answers will change our lives. They're dangerous because these are prayers that come from Scripture so we can be sure that God will always answer these prayers. And they are dangerous because His answers are not always what we expect them to be. So open your Bible this morning to Psalm 139. Verse 23 is where we're going to start. Page 477 in our pew Bibles. And when you find that, I'll ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. David writes in Psalm 139 and 23, Search my heart, O God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The title of the message this morning is Dangerous Prayers. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you. You are great and awesome and wonderful. God, we... We are in awe of all that you've given us and all that you've done. We think about the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins and what was accomplished there in our place. It is an amazing thing. We thank you for that. We thank you for the great week that we had at camp. We thank you for the kids who gave their lives to you, for all those who went. Just the good time and the safe travel that we all had. Thank you for the opportunity today to gather and to learn from your word. And we ask you to help us to be focused upon you. Let your Holy Spirit come now and center our hearts upon you and help us to lay aside the cares of life that we can listen to you, that we can be challenged by your word, and we can be strengthened to be the people you want us to be. Father, we all want a deep prayer life. We all want to know that you're here. We all want to know that you're at work in our lives, that you hear our prayers. So today, speak to us through your word. Help me to be a vessel of honor that you would use to strengthen and encourage your people. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech and help me not to be a hindrance in any way to anything you might want said or done this morning. Guide us that our hearts would be open and our hearts would be good ground and that the seed that's planted this morning would bear fruit to everlasting life. We love you. Let your will be done in all of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. every, Every text of Scripture has a context. And the prayers in in verses 23 and 24 are no different. And the context of Psalm 139 is significant because it helps us understand why we can pray dangerous prayers and why we should pray these dangerous prayers. 
The first part of Psalm 139 gives us some tremendous information about our relationship with God. And what this psalm teaches us about our relationship with God, it's what part of what motivates us to pray these prayers. It's part of what motivates us to pray these prayers confidently. Now, in every bulletin, there should have been an outline that you can use to fill out. And if you'll notice, I didn't put numbers by the outline this time. That's because there's technically eight points, and I didn't want anybody to freak out just by seeing that. It's like two sermons, but it's not going to feel like two sermons. We won't be here for two hours. Maybe like one and a half sermons. No, it really won't be nearly as long as it looks like it's going to be. Um, But in these first few verses of Psalm 139, it tells us some truths about God that are important for us to understand that are common. I mean, I'm not going to tell you anything you've probably never heard before. But these are things that are important to be reminded of, things that are important to, to just keep in the forefront of our minds, especially as we start praying these dangerous prayers at the bottom. So the four things, number one, God knows everything about me. But as we pray these prayers, I mean, you you read it. We're we're praying for God to search us, to try us, to test us, to break us, and to lead us. Now, one of the temptations in a thing like that is always say, well, I need, you know, before I pray a prayer for somebody to do these things or ask somebody to speak into my life, they need to be sure they know all the information. Right? Somebody can give advice, but they don't know everything, and so they're given bad advice. We're told in, in verse 1, said, O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. God has already searched all of us. God has already known all of us. And he knows everything about each and every one of us. Now, David doesn't leave the God knowing everything about us in the realm of God knows everything. He gives us very specific things. God knows everything I do. You know my sitting down and my rising up. So God knows everything we do in our life. Every action we take, every reaction we take, all of our priorities, God already knows everything we do day in and day out. God knows everything I think. You understand my thoughts afar off. But God knows every thought we think, even if we do not speak them. God knows what I thought about the guy with 100 items and the 20 item or less line yesterday when I needed to go through there. God knows what you thought when you looked at the thought about your preacher when you looked at the outline and realized there were eight points in the sermon today. God knows every thought we think, regardless of whether we speak them or not. God knows everywhere I go. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Right? God knows everything we do in life, everywhere we go, good, bad, and everything else. He knows all about it. And God knows everything I say. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God knows the words we speak in public that everyone hears. God knows the words that we speak in private that no one hears. So when we pray these dangerous prayers, we are praying to a God who legitimately knows everything there is to know about every area of our life. Not only does God know everything about us, but God is always with me. Right? This is one of the reasons that God is always can know all of our ways and know all the things that we do. Right? David expresses this, and I think this is important, the way he expresses it, because he says, first, I can't run away from God. Right? Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, 
even there your hand will lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Right? God is always with us. But in this, a part of what it means that God is always with us is that we cannot get away from God even if we want to. Now we can run from doing God's will, but we can't actually run from the presence of God because He is always there. Secondly, I cannot hide from God. Right? He says, if I say, Surely the darkness shall fall upon me, even the night shall be about me. Indeed, the, the darkness shall not hide me for you, but the night shines as in the day. The darkness and the light are alike to you. Right? You can't hide anything from God. You can't hide any thoughts or actions or attitudes or priorities or anything. Right? The idea that the night and the day are alike to God basically just carries with the idea that God sees everything. There is no hiding from God's knowledge of our lives and our actions and of anything and everything. Right? So we can pray these prayers because God is always with me. Thirdly, God created me. It says in verse 13, You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's wombs. I, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Right? God is the creator. Right? All throughout scripture, God is painted as the creator of all things. But in this passage, David says not God just the creator of all things out there. But God is very personally your creator as well. He was actively involved in the shaping of who you are and what you became. Right, this, when we pray these prayers, we are praying to the one who designed us. We are praying to the one who created us, who thought of us, who planned for us. Those are good things. And then finally, God has precious plans for me. Verse 16 says, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they all were written. The days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Right, you see... There's two ideas here. One is that God, before we were born, God knew everything that would happen in our lives. Nothing that happened in our lives caught God by surprise. He was fully aware and fully knowledgeable of every decision we would make, good and bad. He was aware of all the circumstances that would come into our lives. All of this was known to our God. But at the same time, some of these things were not just things God knew, but some things were things that God planned. That God planned for us to be something. God planned for us to do something. God planned for us to make decisions and do certain things. And he goes on. And I love verse 17. This is a key point. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Right, and here's a key about God's plans for us. God's plans are always for our good. God's plans for our life are always for our ultimate good. To such an extent that they are precious plans for us. His thoughts toward us and His plans for us are more numerous and it's possible to count. Now these, again, this is not new information. Right? 
nobody came in here, I don't think, and realized for the first time that God knows everything about us, that God is always with us, that God created us, and that God has plans for us. But these are foundational truths as we move into these prayers. Because we are going to pray for God to do specific things in our lives. These are not prayers for God to do for us. These are prayers for God to bring change into us. And a, a temptation, anytime there's correction in our lives, is always to say, you don't know enough. You don't have all of the information, and so what you're saying doesn't take all the facts into consideration. Well, what God brings into our mind and what God deals with us about always has all the facts brought into consideration because God knows everything about us. The temptation is to say, well, you don't know because you weren't there. And so you don't know what was right and what should have been done. But God says, I was there. I am always with you. The temptation is to say, well, my natural personality and and here's the way I am. And God would say, I know how you are. I created you. The temptation is to say, well, you're just a, a negative Nelly. You're just someone that likes to be critical and you don't really care about me. And to which God says, I have precious plans for your life. These truths motivate us to pray these prayers, knowing that when God answers, his answers are always true. His answers are always right. His answers always come from a place of knowledge, of concern and of love And they will bring us to a place where we can better fulfill His will and His plans for our lives. So what are the four dangerous prayers? Number one, search me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Now, we start by asking God to search our lives. But not just any part of our lives, but we're asking God to search our hearts. And in the Bible, the heart is different than it is seen in our culture. In our world today, the heart is the center of the emotions. But in the biblical times, the heart was not the center of the emotions. It was the center of the being. It was the center of the will. The Bible tells us that everything that comes out of our lives is a reflection of the things that are in our hearts. The Bible says that the very words that we speak are an overflow of our hearts. That's why Proverbs tells us in Proverbs 4.23 to guard our hearts with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. Right? More than anything else, our heart determines who we are, what we do, how we act, how we think, and everything about our lives. Now, in our culture, a very common saying is, just follow your heart. Right? The heart will never lead you astray. And the Bible speaks to the idea of following your heart as well, but it doesn't speak in the same way our culture does. Look at what Proverbs says. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but whoever walks wisely will be delivered. Now, 
Again, that's very different than what our world would say. And the idea of follow your heart, this is what our culture pushes. This is the theme of most movies, most things. Just follow your heart and it all works out in the end. And the Bible says if you follow your heart, that's the dumbest thing you can possibly do. So we need God to search our hearts. But why? Why is it foolish to follow our hearts? Why can't we search our own hearts? Well, the Bible answers that as well. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Now, <laughs> just let that sink in. Right. Now, that was written a long time ago, but that's just not the people in Jeremiah's day. Right. Here's, here's a fact. My heart is deceitfully wicked. My heart. Your heart is as well. Right? And what it means that our heart is deceitfully wicked. I think one of the main thoughts is that our heart, our heart is excellent at justification. It is in our heart that we justify our sin. It is in our heart that we excuse our lack of devotion to Jesus. It is in our heart that we begin to make excuses that explain why what I do is okay, even though what you do, even if it's the same thing, is not okay. Every sexual sin comes because people follow their hearts. It doesn't matter whether it's fornication or adultery or homosexuality or pornography. It comes from following our hearts. We say things like the heart wants what it wants. But that is not. A valid justification in the eyes of God because the heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately wicked. The heart will say to us, God surely just wants you to be happy. The heart will say, things would be better if you would just to go over here and do this. The heart will say, you do some for the Lord, isn't that enough? The heart will justify our sin. And our lack of devotion to God. And the thing is, we are not able to be objective about ourselves. I mean, in reality, we can't even be objective about our own children for the most part, can we? I mean, how many of us have said, my kids are tired. But when other kids do it, they're spoiled. Same thing. Same activity. Right? Well, my kids are just... A little overactive. But your kids are just rude. Right? We can look at two kids. One of them being ours. And one being another kid. And both doing the exact same thing. And we can find a way to say that what our kids wasn't done. What our kids did wasn't as bad as what the other kid did. Why? Because the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And if we can't do that about our children or people we care about. How much less can we do it in our own lives? That's why we need God. Because who can know our hearts? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. God alone searches the heart. God alone knows our heart. 
And God alone can expose what's really there and what's really going on and help us to be able to deal with these things. We, each and every one, we desperately need God to search our hearts and to see if there is anything in our hearts that's not as it should be. And so a dangerous prayer to pray is this. God, search my heart to see if I am justifying my sin. I mean, am I living in a way that I know is contrary to Scripture, but I have a very good reason why I am. Search my heart, God, to see if I'm justifying my sin. Search my heart, God, to see if I'm justifying my lack of devotion to you. I know I should be more faithful. I know I should be doing this. I know I should find and use my spiritual gifts, whatever, but I'm not. And here's the reasons. God, help me to see if I'm justifying my lack of devotion to you. Those are dangerous prayers. Because I promise you, God will answer those prayers. And very often in my experience, God answers these prayers in ways I did not expect. It's a dangerous prayer. A second prayer is test me. He says at the end of verse 23, to try me. Now, I put test because some translations say test. I think it's a better translation of the word. And it doesn't refer necessarily to the fiery trials that come into our lives. Instead, this test is is allowing God or asking God to come in and to search us. Asking God to come in and to see if everything is on the up and the up in this area of our life. And the area that this one deals with is our thoughts. Now, again, some translations will say anxieties. Some translations may say anxious thoughts. Others will just say thoughts. Um, The Hebrew word used there has a broad range of meaning. I think thoughts is probably the best one that's needed there. We need God to test our thoughts. And why do we need God to test our thoughts? And what are we asking God to test our thoughts for? Well, what we need... God, to test our thoughts for is to see if we're deceived in some way. That's because it's very easy to end up believing something that's not true. How many of us have ever been deceived by someone before? Right? Someone told us one thing and something totally different was the truth. We we fell for it. It's easy, sadly, easy to be deceived. Now, in the physical world, that's bad, but it's not nearly as dangerous as it is in the spiritual world. We need God to test our thoughts for three reasons. One is that Satan seeks to deceive us. Look at what Jesus told the Pharisees. You're of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar, the father of it. One of Satan's primary ways of attacking people in the world is through deception. In Revelation, he's called the one who deceived the whole world. In the Bible, I think he deceives people in all kinds of ways. 2 Corinthians 3, maybe 3 and 4, tell us that people who don't believe the gospel are perishing. And the reason they don't believe is because the God of this world has blinded their minds to keep them from believing, lest they should understand the truth, repent of their sins, believe in Jesus, and be saved. How does, he, how does he blind their minds and keep them from believing? He deceives them. He causes them to believe a lie instead of the truth. And so he keeps them from Jesus. But, but when we're saved, his activity in seeking to deceive us doesn't stop. 
He still continues to deceive us, right? He always wants us to believe something opposite of what God has said. Right? Anytime, I mean, when we, when we meet Satan, what is the first thing he says? Hath God said? I mean, at the very beginning, he wants to cast doubt on God's word. He contradicts God's word. He's a liar from the very beginning. And so in our day, he does everything he can to deceive unbelievers, to keep them bound in sin and perishing. But then when we get saved, he still begins to try to deceive us. He wants to convince us that certain things in God's word are not accurate for us today. That maybe they're just old and outdated. Or maybe it's not reliable. Or maybe God just changed his mind about certain things. At any time, you find something saying the opposite of what God has said in His Word as true. Be sure that is the devil trying to deceive someone. He seeks to deceive us. Secondly, we often deceive ourselves. But be doers of the Word and not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves. Today, all across the world, Christians will sit in church And they will listen to preaching. And when the service is out, they will go home. And for many of those people, they will be no different than they were when they came. They will know that the Bible has dealt with them about something. They will be aware of the fact that they had convicted, that God had convicted them about something in their life that wasn't as it should be. That there was something they needed to change in response to what was taught from God's Word. And they will say, I'm sure it's okay. They will convince themselves that just going and just hearing or just reading is enough. You don't actually have to do it as long as you hear it. You don't actually have to live it as long as you consistently read it. And in doing so, they deceive themselves. Jesus warned about this. He told the Pharisees, he said, you know what, you search the scriptures because you think that it's in them you have life, but these scriptures, they point to me. But you won't come to me that I can give you life. Was the issue that they didn't hear the word? No. Was the issue that they didn't study the word? No. Was the issue that they didn't know the word? No. What would destroy them? The fact that they didn't do what the word said. And that's the same way for many people in our world today. Know what the Bible said is right and wrong. Know what the Bible said to do or not do. To do something different and convince ourselves that it's okay. Because we read. We checked our box. We went to church. We, we self-deceive. Or, we need to know because deception brings such terrible consequences. Deception brings terrible consequences. Now these verses are a bit of a challenge to understand because our culture is so different from the one that Jesus preached this in. The background of this statement was the Jewish concept of the eyes being the windows to the soul. And at least part of the idea with it seems to be on the thought life. What went through the eyes is what you thought about, and what you thought about determined who you were. What we look at, we think about, what we think about, we become. So what we let in our mind or what we embrace as the truth or make the foundation of truth That will determine who we are. That will determine everything about us. So Jesus gives the contrast here between light and darkness. 
Light would be Scripture. Darkness would be the world. Now, Jesus said that if the light that is in us in darkness, how great that darkness would be. And the idea with this is that of being deceived. A person who is deceived by their foundation of truth will think they're right. Therefore, filled with light when they are in all actuality wrong and filled with darkness. They will think that they are on the right track when in reality they are on the wrong track. They will think they're on the path to life when they're truly on the path to destruction. You know, a key thing for us to understand is that just because something feels right doesn't mean that it is right. Scripture warns us about that. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Being convinced we're right doesn't mean anything if we're really wrong. And we know this in other areas, right? Gerald, when you taught math, if someone argued convincingly that 2 plus 2 is 5, did you give them it because they really believed it? No. And I bet no other teacher in here does that as well. You know, they, they say they passionately explain why their wrong answer is right. You don't say, you're pretty intense about that. It must be true. Full credit. You don't do that. If you don't do it there, why would you do it spiritually? See, faith has no value if the faith is in the wrong object. Faith only has value when it's placed in the proper object. God. The Word of God. We are easily deceived. And, and I don't know how you are. But if I'm convinced I'm right, it's going to take an awful lot to convince me I'm wrong. I'm, I'm just a little stubborn. And I might be a little proud. And I might think I just know a little more than some. And so the more convinced I am, the harder it is to convince me I'm wrong. And I'll continue going, doing the wrong thing over and over and over again because I think I'm right. Now, in some things, that may not be a big deal. But in spiritual things, that is eternally significant. See, it is not enough to think you're right. You actually have to be right. It's not enough to actually believe it. You actually have to believe what's true. There are terrible, terrible consequences for believing a lie when it comes to spiritual things. And so, because we do tend to self-deceive, because the enemy is trying to blind us and deceive us, because of the terrible consequences for it, we need God to test our thoughts, to see if we are in any way deceived. And so a dangerous prayer. God, test my thoughts to see if I am deceived by Satan's lies instead of embracing your truth. God, test my thoughts to see if I am deceiving myself about my obedience to your word. God, test my thoughts to see if I am deceived into following what seems right instead of what you say is right. Again, this is a dangerous prayer because it's a prayer God will answer. 
many times we will be shocked at the things we thought were right that really weren't. Search me, test me, break me. The point of all of these is found in the verse of 24, found in the first of verse 24, and see if there's any wicked way in me. But I mean, that's what we're wanting God to, to search us for. Search our heart for anything that's not right. Search our mind for anything that's not right. Right? We, we want to know if there's anything wicked and wrong in our lives. But it's not enough to know that something is wrong. Right? God expects there to be a proper response to these revelations. I mean, how do you respond to your personal sin? How do you respond when you give in to temptation? How do you respond when you do what you know God has said not to do? Well, the Bible tells us what we're supposed to do. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. I would say, if there is any verse that describes what the Christian life should be like in regards to sin, this should be it broken spirit, broken in a contrite heart. God help us to be okay with our sin. God help us not to, no, God don't help us be okay with our sin. It was a long week at church camp. We were out in the sun a lot. God help us not to be okay with our sin. God help us not to think our sin is trivial in comparison to others. God help us not to watch the television and see people doing quote-unquote big things and think, thank you, Lord, that I'm not of one of those people. God, help us to be broken over our sin. To always have a broken and a contrite heart and a broken spirit toward our sin. This is the way we're supposed to respond. In the New Testament, Paul explains that a broken spirit leads to repentance and repentance leads to life. For godly sorrow, that's the broken heart and the broken spirit, Produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And I like this. Because there's two different kinds of sorrow that we can have for sin. There's the sorrow of the world that leads to death. There's the sorrow that's godly that leads to salvation or life. What's the difference? I think we can think of the difference by understanding what a godly sorrow is not. A godly sorrow... Is not being afraid that God's going to break our legs, burn down our house, or punish us in some way. A, a godly sorrow is not being sorry because we were caught. I mean, how many of us, right, our kids are doing something they should not be doing, and they are laughing and joyfully embracing this activity. But the moment they're caught and know that there's consequences, I'm so sorry, oh, I didn't mean it. Right? And how many of us just go... I believe you. You're probably never going to do that again. I don't see any hands, so I'm going to guess that none of us believe that. They're sorry that they got caught. They're sorry in hopes that their sorrow will get them out of trouble. That is a worldly sorrow. And sadly enough, we often take that kind of sorrow to God. Oh, Lord, I was caught and now I'm going to be embarrassed. People are going to know how I've acted and what I've done. Oh, please forgive me, God. Please help. Or we're afraid there's going to be consequences. I'm going to lose my family now. I'm going to lose my job. Oh, please, God, I'm sorry. Don't let me lose my wife. Don't let me lose my job. 
we're not really sorry for the sin. We're sorry for the consequences. We're sorry for the, the embarrassment, the, the being caught. That is a worldly sorrow that leads to death. And here's why. The worldly sorrow leads to death because it doesn't bring genuine change. Again, think about with your children. They're sorry as long as there is a threat of punishment hanging over them. But the moment they know they're in the clear, the tears dry up, the snot dries up, the crying ceases, and they're back to doing whatever they were doing as soon as we're not looking. And that's what we do to God. We're sorry as long as we're afraid we're going to be embarrassed because we were caught. But as soon as it's obvious we're not going to be busted in public, we're right back to it again. We're sorry as long as there are consequences. And we're afraid of the consequences. But as soon as it's obvious that the consequences are not going to happen, we're right back to where we were before. And that kind of sorrow leads to death. But a godly sorrow produces repentance, leads to life. Is a sorrow, it's just sorry you've sinned against God. Whether, whether God punishes you or not. Whether anyone finds out or not. It's just the sorrow that says, you have done so much for me. I am so sorry that I did this against you. It's a godly sorrow. And so, what we want to pray is not to have a worldly sorrow. We want to pray to be genuinely broken over our sin. And so, a, a dangerous prayer is this. God, keep my heart tender towards your conviction and break my heart over anything in my life that is not as you want it to be. Again, that's a dangerous prayer because that's a prayer God will answer. And that kind of tenderness of heart can be difficult. But it is the path that leads to life. And then the final, search me, test me, break me, and then lead me. Finally, David says, lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me in the way that, that's the best. Lead me in the way that you want me to go. And when we talk about God leading us, it's important to understand that there is a right way and a wrong way for us to be led of God. Uh, here, here's the wrong way. First part, here's what God promises. I'll instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I'll guide you with my eye. Beautiful thing. God always wants to lead us in our life. That's never a question. It's never a matter of will God lead me or does God want to lead me. He always will. But notice the warning. Do not be like a horse or like the mule which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with a bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. And basically, here's what God's saying. It's not really obedience if I have to force you to do it. Saying God lead me and then not doing it until God brings negative consequences in my life until I do it. That's not, it's not right. That's not the way it's supposed to be. I think of Jonah. Jonah is not a picture of an obedient prophet. He's a picture of someone who disobeyed God. And in the midst of the choices he had of being digested or going and doing what God said, he said, I guess I'll go. God made him obey. And God can make us obey. I mean, we have a free will and God lets us choose, but never doubt the power of God to force his hand and to make us do his will. He absolutely can. 
that's not what he wants. He wants, I like the idea with the eye. He wants us to, he wants just kind of the, the look. And we go that way. We go that way. That's, that's the way it's supposed to be. I think of it like when I was in the army. When we walked in the woods, you couldn't just yell at people because you were trying to be quiet. So you had hand and arm signals. Right? Come here. Stop. Go that way. Lay down. You know, shut up. <laughs> and the goal was to train everybody to the point that you never had to say, look at me. But you could just make the motion and they knew exactly what to do. That's the way God wants it with us. He can yell and he can press. But he would prefer to just say, come here, go there, wait. And we do it. I I love what David goes on to say in another psalm. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are, my, you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. And one of the things to understand about the lead me prayer and what David is seeking up there. Show me your ways, teach me your paths, lead me in your truth, teach me. David isn't necessarily saying, I've got an issue in my life, help me to know how to resolve it. Lead me to fix this problem. What David is saying is, lead me in my life. Right? Lead me to the way everlasting. Lead me in every area of my life to do what is best. Similarly, up there, show me your ways, not in a specific issue, but in all things. But right? a lead me prayer. I mean, there are times, don't get me wrong, there are times we have decisions that need to be made. Help me to make the right decision. Help me to know what to do here. Certainly, we should pray that. But those aren't the only times we should pray, lead me prayers. But God wants to lead us in all of life. He doesn't just want to lead us in the areas we feel weak in and for us to tell him on the other stuff, I got it, I got, I'll handle this. He wants us to pray, lead me in what's best in everything. Right? Like, let me, let me kind of meddle a minute. How many of us, I mean, think of an area, of a lead me area that we don't pray about, like with our money. I mean, now, if we having financial issues, we may pray, Lord, help me, lead me to know what to do to fix this. But how many of us have ever said, Lord, lead me with what to do with what we might call discretionary money? Lord, help me to know what would be the best use of all that you've given me. Or, or maybe like free time. And you think, what, what's free time? I have kids. I don't have any idea what that is. But we all have some time. We read a book, we watch TV, we play on Facebook, we Twitter, we do something. Have we ever prayed, you know, Lord, here's this time that I'm doing this with. What would be a better use of that? Lead me in what's right. And I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I mean, you may be doing exactly what God wants you to do with both of those. I'm not saying you're not. But those are just pictures of the all-encompassing lead me prayer. It's not just... Lead me in spiritual things. It is lead me in all things. Lead me in every area of my life. That is a dangerous prayer. And so a dangerous prayer to go with it would be this. God, lead me so that my thoughts, actions, 
reactions, and priorities reflect your work in my life and are in line with your will. That's a dangerous prayer because, again, God will answer it. God has a will and a plan for all of our lives. And in praying this, God will begin to deal with us and it will change us forever. So are you ready to develop a dangerous prayer life? Let me ask you, which of these are you most willing to pray? And then a tougher question, which of these are you least willing to pray? Praying these dangerous prayers, it is dangerous because it will often result God answering in ways we did not expect and leading us out of our comfort zone. But make no mistake, these kinds of prayers definitely put us on the path towards intimacy with God, spiritual growth, and being exactly who God has created us and saved us to be. So let's stand as our musicians come forward.